The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans, chapter 12. Uh, for these past few weeks since we finished up our study on the church, what I've done uh, on Sunday nights is to just pick out some different topics to speak to you on. Uh, as you know, the preferred method is for me to take a book of the Bible and teach through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter and just explain Scripture as we go. And I think that is the right method for teaching the Word of God. And that is the method that's used consistently throughout church history. And sometimes as we're going through the different books of the Bible that we've studied, you may think that I spend too much time on one individual passage of Scripture and we just take too long to get through it. But if you had lived at the time of the Puritans, you would think that I was actually moving at light speed through the Bible. Uh, one of the great Puritan preachers, Thomas Manton, preached over 100 sermons in one chapter. That was the 119th Psalm. And then uh, another of my favorite, John Flavel, a favorite Puritan preacher, John Flavel, preached on one verse of Scripture, and this is the one that we read this morning in our Sunday school class that we had a question on, Revelation 3.20, and John Flavel's exposition of that particular text fills up a book of more than 400 pages. So I don't want to hear any complaints that I move too slowly as we look at the Scriptures. But I do, I do prefer that method, and I believe verse-by-verse uh, verse exposition is the way that we should go. Uh, we should keep the Scriptures in their context and explain them within that context. And I think there is too much preaching today where preachers would pull out, well, they have a pet doctrine or they have a topic that they'd like to speak on. So they go and look in the Bible to find a verse taken out of its context to support a presupposed or their predisposed dispositions. And uh, I think that's the wrong thing for us to do. I, I, we, we have a lot of topical preaching today uh, where people just don't go through the Bible and they do take things out of the context. But despite all of that, I do think it's right for us at time to preach topical messages. Uh, there are times that we just have to stop and there are particular issues that we need to address and so we preach a topical message. But as we do, hopefully we'll stick to teaching a topical message in an expository manner. So that's what we'll try to do this evening. And tonight I've chosen as our text Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 16. And in these verses, the Apostle Paul wrote, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind, one toward another, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Now, as you look at those verses and, and the ones that are surrounding it, you can see that we're actually breaking into Paul's thoughts. And here we're separating these verses out from the rest of the text. And the ongoing theme that the Apostle Paul is speaking of here in this 12th chapter is the relationship that Christians are to have with other Christians. 
Now, if you're acquainted with Paul's method, which I hope you are by our own studies in the different uh, epistles of Paul, you know that he's always consistent in the way that he teaches in his letters. After he gives a greeting to the people, then he begins his doctrinal sections, and then when he's finished talking about the doctrine, he turns to the practical application of what he's just said. And sometimes Paul gives doctrine that takes a long time for him to get through. And that's the way it is. And when you read the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters are filled with some of the deepest doctrines that you find in the Word of God. In the book of Romans, you find the discussion of man's depravity, of man's total helplessness without Christ. He gives us the doctrine of justification. He goes on to speak of doctrines that some would prefer to ignore and pretend that they don't exist. And that's when you come to doctrines like election and predestination. Then he also tells us about the security that we have in Christ. And then beyond that, he goes into the continuing work of God with the nation of Israel and the relationship of Israel and Gentiles in God's economy. And then we come here to chapter 12. Chapter 12 in the book of Romans. And really before we even get there, Paul finishes the section on doctrine with a doxology of praise. And Paul is often prone to do this. He contemplates the doctrine that he's just given and he just breaks out in a doxology. And if you look in the 11th chapter in verse number 33, you see where Paul stops after the doctrine. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now Paul's often prone to do that. There are several passages in his letters where he just pauses. And then he breaks out into praise because of the doctrine. And so we come here to chapter 12 and Paul settles down from this overwhelming experience of the doctrine that he's just taught and he tells the people or he's pointing out to the people that the doctrine needs to be applied in a practical way. And I think that he understands that through everything that he's just said that we're going to have a very difficult time understanding what he says Unless we take a whole lot of time just to get down deep into the doctrine that he teaches and try to learn it. He knows that we're going to have difficulty with it. But I think here in chapter 12, he just eases up a little bit for us. And he tells us that when we do understand the doctrine, then the practical applications will be the inevitable consequence of that doctrine. And so essentially what he says is since God has done all of these things for you, all the marvelous things that he's done here is the way that should affect your life. This is the way that you should live your life because of what's been taught. Now you find that over and over again in Paul's epistles. You find the doctrine, then you find the application of the doctrine. And we notice that especially in two other of Paul's difficult books, and that's the book of Galatians and Ephesians. Now what we're doing here tonight is we're just going to break into a little piece of what Paul has to say in the application part. And there are actually five chapters of this. It goes on to chapter 16 where Paul is applying the doctrine that he's just taught. Now there are four verses here that I want to speak to you on tonight. And if I were John Flavel, that would be four times 400 pages of material. 
But I don't have enough time to do all that tonight, so we're going to shorten things up just a little bit and move at light speed through these four verses. So how are we, how are we to interact with others? How do we to interact with both Christians and non-Christians as we go through this life in this world? Well, let's take a look at this for a few minutes tonight. Just a few pointers here, and there are many, many more as we go on through the scriptures and in, in, in the Romans. But I've picked out these, these particular things, just five things that I'd like to point out to you that uh, Christians need to be aware of as we go through the Christian life. Now, the first thing that I'd like for us to notice is facing adversity. Facing adversity. Now, I remind you that Paul was a teacher of the Christian faith, that this faith or this religion that we practice is not something that Paul invented. But whether what he does is he looks back to the teachings of Christ that we find in the gospel accounts, and then under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, what Paul does is to expand on the teachings that Jesus gave, and he keeps on developing to a greater degree the Christological themes that we find in the gospels. Now, one of the chief warnings that Jesus gave to his disciples was about constant adversity. And he said that when you follow him, that you're going to run into trouble. He said when you have faith in him, the Christian life is not going to be easy. And there's not a a follower of his that should expect that this life would be easy. There's going to be a lot of opposition. And that opposition may come from people that are God-haters, like people that you may live with in your neighborhoods. It might be someone that you go to work with and others. But the opposition can also come from those that you love the most. It may be your father, your mother, a wife or a husband. It might be your children. And what the Word of God teaches us, that anyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ is a potential adversary for a Christian. The people that you live with in your own home many times are not going to appreciate the the, the time and the effort that you spend trying to serve Christ. Sometimes the, the opposition can be violent. Maybe not physically violent, but sometimes very mentally challenging. It challenges the peace of your family. Peace in your family is ruined because you have decided to pursue a course for Christ and the rest of the family doesn't want it. And as a consequence of that, life can become miserable in your home. Now, there's an interesting verse in Proverbs that says, It is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Some of you experienced that? Is that the reaction I get? But the very same thing can be said about husbands and about children. When your home is supposed to be a place of peace and safety, it's a place of comfort, a place of relaxation. But because of Christ your home can actually become a place that you dread to go home to. Now, the first thing that I would tell you about that, according to Jesus, is that it shouldn't be a surprise. You're you're, you're not experiencing some kind of a deficient Christianity because you run into trouble. You're not to think that because you, you trusted Christ and now trouble has come into your life that somehow you just didn't get it right, things have gone terribly wrong, when instead you are actually experiencing things that are exactly right. This is just what Jesus said would happen. So you're in the middle of what he said would happen, and what you have to learn to do is to deal with that, to deal with it in a Christian manner. 
I was counseling a man about a year ago on this very issue, and he mistakenly thought that, that when he became a Christian that all the troubles would vanish. And I told him not to expect it. And I said, becoming a Christian is not an end of your troubles. In fact, you may find you have more troubles because you've come to Christ. And the thing to do is not to abandon Christ because you run into trouble. What you have to do is to rely upon the Lord, ask for his blessing and ask for his help and for his comfort as you, as you deal, deal with these things and for God to give you the strength to learn how to handle those. So the solution is not to abandon Christ, it's to trust Christ and rely upon him that he'll give you the personal peace that you desire in the midst of struggles. Now notice what Paul says in verse number 14. He says, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Now as I said, what Paul did was to develop Christological themes and this is a very close parallel to what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5 and verses 44 and 45, he said, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And so the example that Jesus gives us is his own example and that of his father. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He makes it rain on the just and on the unjust. And that just tells us that God is merciful even to those that hate him. That he takes care of this world. He gives every evil person also the breath that they breathe and the food that they eat. And so God expects us that we're going to treat in the same way, those that oppose us with no less courtesy, even though they've done everything or might do everything that they can to make our lives miserable. Now, the easiest thing for a husband and wife and family members to do when they come in conflict over the Lord is to raise voices. It's to get into a shouting match and try to cut the other person down. But what a Christian has to learn to do is to be calm in all of his experiences, whatever, whether it's a domestic situation or not, Christians must be reserved and calm in their conflicts. What we have to do is to act prayerfully. Now, for sure, we have to do this. We have to stand our ground. We're not to give an inch for Jesus Christ, but we're never to have within us a spirit of retaliation. Now, when Jesus was teaching in Matthew 5, he was directly refuting the abuse of the... Uh, commandments by the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they believed that it was okay for you to do harm to those who harmed you, especially those that are non-Jews. And so they took the command in the Old Testament where the Bible says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they counted that as their permission to strike back against others. Now, for the Bible does teach that, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But the problem is the misapplication of that when the Pharisees took that and said, well, this is for us as individuals. Uh, that we can take care of these problems ourselves. When what God was talking about was the accountability of governments to punish evildoers and to do it in a way that the crimes, that the punishment for the crime was commensurate with the crime that had been committed. That was never God's way and God never intended for individuals to take punishment into their own hands. 
So we're going to face adversity. We'll face it from the inside and from the outside. And you have to learn how to deal with that in a Christ-like spirit. Now, the example that's given in Scripture by Peter in 1 Peter 2.23, he talks about Jesus and he says, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to, that ju- to him that judgeth righteously. Now, you'll notice that in our text, in Romans 12.14, that there are two commands. The first one is to bless. Most of you know what a eulogy is. At a funeral, a person will give a eulogy, and eulogy is something, simply means to speak well of another person. And so at a funeral, someone will get up and they will speak well of the person that's died. They'll talk about all the good things that they've done in their life. Well, the Greek word that we have here in this text for bless is the word eulageo, from which we get eulogy. It means to speak well of another person. Now, the way that Paul says that we are to respond to the bitterness of persecution is to turn things around and to speak well of that person who harms you. Now, I know that's hard to do. And that's probably harder than anything there is for you to do. That's totally unnatural to our humanity. I mean, if anything is unnatural to us, it's to do good things for people that have harmed us. Now, what you would rather do, much rather do, is to pound that person into the dirt. And if that's the way that you think, that's what you'll do. Either you you may not do it physically, but you'll do it verbally. But you know the Lord shows us that there is something that is very disarming about responding to bitterness with a blessing. And I'm not really saying that you ought to look at it this way, but if you really want to get under somebody's skin, when when they... start to put you down and they become angry with you, just try returning them a little bit of kindness. And what will happen is, you may not calm them down, they might even get madder. And what you've done is you have shamed them with your sweet spirit. Now the second command that's given here is not to curse them. And I'm sad to say that this is a common response from even Christians, that they will curse people. But I'll tell you, you don't have the right to curse anyone. And you might not know this, and it might seem a little bit odd to you, but when you curse someone, you're actually guilty of one of the greatest sins that's in the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about the third commandment, which is not to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's included with this. But the commandment that I'm actually talking about is commandment number one. And that is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Did you know this, that when you curse that it is idolatry. That what you've done is you've actually stepped into God's shoes and you've taken over God's work. You don't have the right to curse anyone. That's a right that's reserved to God himself. God's the only one who's able to give judgment and he reserves all judgment to himself. Even Jesus said, I've committed myself to the one who judges righteously. So God is the one who takes vengeance and God always says, if there's a problem, leave that problem to me. I'll take care of it in the right time. I'll I'll see that everything's done just like it's supposed to be. So essentially the message of the scripture is this, leave things to God. And you're supposed to treat people in the same way that Christ treated you. I mean, there was no one that was more opposed to God than you. 
And that's the way that Paul said that we're to look at things. He said, I am the chief of sinners. That's the way that he looked at his own life. No one had offended God more than him. And I think that's how we have to look at this. Not think about how good we are, all the great things that we've done, what it was like before we were saved and weren't such bad, such bad people, but to realize that our sins are against a holy God, and yet in that unholiness and the hatred that we had for him, God was willing to save us. That God was willing to give his own son for us. Now nobody's treated you as badly as you've treated God. And so you don't have any right to treat anybody any worse than God would treat them. And God is always benevolent and kind. As we talked just a moment ago, he'll take care of things in his own due time. So he takes us as vile sinners and he loves us and he expects us to treat other people in the very same way. Now, the second uh, lesson here that we learn about getting along with others is expressing empathy. This is in verse number 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Empathy is about being sensitive to the feelings of others. And I will have to say this, that I appreciate people that can show empathy, people that uh, are sensitive to the joys and the hurts of other people. Now, I appreciate that because personally, it seems like I lean more towards sympathy than I do empathy. Now, do you know the difference between sympathy and empathy? Sympathy is when you feel sorry for someone, and empathy is when you feel sorrow with someone. Now, that's what makes your church such a, such a special place. God wants us to be such a close-knit body that we feel sorrow with each other, not just for each other. Now, Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2 that our hearts are comforted when we're knit together in love. Now, you think about this, when the Bible describes the church as a body, how is it possible to be a body without empathy? I mean, how can you have a part of the body that's isolated so the other parts don't share in everything that one, of the part, one part of the body is going through? I'll give you an example of that. Um, the other night, I was in our spare bedroom. I was walking around the bed, and uh, our spare bed has one of those frames where the legs are set back a little bit, you know, from the edge of the frame and the bread spread comes down and bed spread comes down and you can't really see the legs sticking under there. So I walked in there without my shoes and I hit my little toe on the edge of that leg of the bed frame. And when I did, I, I, I looked at my toe and I said, little toe, I feel sorry for you. But just in a little while, you're going to be okay. Well, you know that I didn't do that. That's a lie. Instead, my whole body got involved with this. So I screamed and I cried and I cursed. Well, I really didn't do the cursing part. That's a lie too. But there was empathy, not sympathy for my toe. And that's just how a body works. And this is the way the scriptures describe it. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26. And I think maybe he was inspired by a stubbed toe when he wrote this. And he said, whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or whether one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. And that's the same thing that we see here in Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. Now, the thing about this is that you might think 
that it's much easier to rejoice with a person than it is to weep with a person. But did you know that's not true? Our human nature is selfish. We struggle with envy and jealousy. So if you pull into the parking lot in a brand new Mercedes, it's uh, not easy for us to go out there and look at your new car and say, whoa, I'm so happy for you, Brother Jones. I'm so glad that you can afford such a beautiful car. Now, the easiest thing for us to do is to go out there and take our key and run down along the side of it. And then if Brother Jones gets involved in a fender bender, then we say, well, justice has been served. That's the way that we think. That's because we have this envious idea, you know, we we covet that car. That's the human condition. But you take that back to the analogy of the body, and you could look at it this way, that your hands are not as sensitive as your eyes. And so your hands are not going to say, you know, I have to do all of these things every day, and, and my, I, I get dirty, my hands, my hands get dirty all day long. And your hand says, but those eyes, this fellow's really sensitive about his eyes. When they hurt, he puts drops in them. He puts a patch over his eye. He takes care of his eyes. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stick my finger in my eye. Well, that wouldn't make that sense, would it? Well, it's the same thing as you look at the body of Christ. I mean, what sense does it make for another person in the body of Christ to say, to be envious of another part and say, well, I'm just going to poke you in the eye, so to speak. I mean, of course we're not to act that way. Members of a body, a body doesn't work that way. So when another member prospers, we rejoice for your prosperity. I rejoice for your prosperity. Thank God for that. Now, I know this, that if you prosper, all of you in here are very good Christians. And if God prospers you, you're going to put a bigger check into the park, into the, into the offering plate. And that's what you call pragmatic pastoring. I haven't been around for nothing for all these years. So I know what you're going to do, and I rejoice. Oh, actually, I do rejoice when God prospers you. And that's the way every member ought to look at another member. Now, on the other side of that, when there's sorrow in your family, then you have a body of Christians that will cry with you. And we should, shouldn't we? You know, someone has said that you can meet people and they are your acquaintances, but you don't have a real friend until somebody has cried with you. And did you know that Jesus was like that? When he came to the tomb of Lazarus, the Bible says that he wept. Did you ever think what he was weeping about? Was he weeping for Lazarus? No. He knew that in just a few minutes, Lazarus was going to walk out of the tomb. He wasn't crying for Lazarus, but he saw Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. And he saw the friends that were all there, and they were sad, and and they were all crying. And when Jesus saw that, he had empathy for them, and he also began to weep because of that. So they saw the weeping of the friends. Jesus wept. Their pain was his pain. Their sorrow, his sorrow. And that's what we call empathy. Now, next in this passage, we see helpful advice. Number three is living in harmony. Verse 16 says, be of the same mind one toward another. Now, let me make this very simple for you. Actually, we're going to look at a little bit of a mathematical equation here. That the way to be in harmony with each other is for everybody to be in harmony with Jesus. There's a mathematical axiom that says... If A equals C and B equals C, then A equals B. 
And the axiom is that things that are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So you look at this with the Christian life, that if all of us are equal to Christ or the same as Christ, then all of us are going to be equal to each other. In other words, to put it another way, everybody's on the same page. Now, the important thing is to be in harmony with Christ, to make him the standard. And when he's the standard, then all of us are going to be in harmony with each other. Now, some of you might say, well, Pastor Smith, I'd like to be exactly like you. And that would be a good thing. That would make you highly intelligent and all of that. And it makes sense that that's what you'd want to do. But let's suppose for a moment that, that all of you decide to be like me, but I've got, this, I've got this little quirk. I've got this little vice that I can't get rid of. So all of you decide to be with me, like me. What do you get? Everybody gets the little quirk. Everybody gets the vice they can't get rid of. So you don't want to set me as a standard. And this is why Paul was very careful to say this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So Christ is the standard, and you follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. Now the problem that you have with cults and with people who become preacher followers is that they follow the preacher when he goes beyond Christ, or they follow the preacher when he comes short of Christ and not as Christ. And so what we have to do is to keep our eyes on Christ, and then when we are, when we have our eyes there, we will be in harmony with each other. Now, the practicality of that is that as members of the same church, when you wander off into sin, then you just upset the balance. You've, you just upset the equality. And so now we have dissonance instead of harmony. We practice discipline in the church because dissonance is division. And the worst thing that you can have in a church is division. Jesus said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. In Amos 3 verse 3, it says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? And of course, that's a rhetorical question. Uh, the answer to itself evident. We have to harmonize or else we're going to grate with, on each other like fingernails on a chalkboard. Now let me inject the word of caution here. That the word we have, the word that we're using, is the word harmony. Harmony does not mean to be identical. Let me explain for, explain for a moment. People cannot be identical because what happens is you end up with a cult. This is the reason I don't preach legalism in our church. I don't, I don't preach that all of you have to be, look exactly the like and, and do exactly the same thing. You're not the cult of Berean Baptist Church and, and I'm not the, the cookie cutter and you're the cookies that are cut out of the Berean mold. No, instead, we have harmony. And what that means is there's some latitude in Christianity. There's some room, there's some room to be different and yet remain in harmony. On the piano over here, you have a, a key that's called middle C. And if I go over and I sit down on the piano and I play C, E, and a G, then I have a chord in harmony. But if I play a C, D, and an E, now I've got dissonance. I don't want the D in there. I don't want the dissonance in there because we no longer have harmony. It ruins the harmony. Now, I can be different from you, but I can only be different within the realm of what harmonizes with Jesus. Does that make sense to you? 
If you can't understand that, then you need to ask Melissa and Lucy, and they'll explain to you about harmony. Harmony sounds good, doesn't it? It, it kind of fills in everything when you have harmony. And let me say this about the kids, the kids that are singing. They're beautiful when they sing together in unison. I love it. I mean, their voices are great. But you add the harmony in there. And now you've got a spectrum that just increases the beauty of it, doesn't it? Okay, most of you aren't music students, I see. You got, do you have a tin ear? Do you have a tin ear? No, no. You understand what I'm talking about. And that's why you have different instruments in an orchestra. Not everybody's playing the same note in the orchestra and not the same instrument, but everything comes together and harmonizes. And that's the way it works in the body of Christ. There's room to be different, but only as different, only different to the extent that we don't go outside the bounds of what it is to be like Jesus. Now, unfortunately, what we have in the church many times is some of us are playing Bach and others are playing rap. And those things don't go very well together. So everything in the church doesn't always harmonize. And so that's why we stick with the Bible. We stick with the Bible because if we stay there, then we're always going to be right. Now, fourthly in this passage, we learn about acting with courtesy. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. One of the things that I like about Berean, I've always liked this about Berean, is cultural diversity, the diversity that we have here. Now, I grew up uh, in the South a long time ago and without cultural diversity. In, uh, in my childhood, I was mostly around white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Or I might adjust that a little bit. Most of the people around were white Anglo-Saxon Baptists. And I was just telling Mina this the other day that... When I was a child, I never met a Mexican. There were no Hispanics that lived in my neighborhood. I didn't know any Asians. There were no Filipinos that lived on Lane Allen Road in Lexington, Kentucky. And it wasn't until I was in the fifth grade that there was a black kid in my class. School desegregation came along about the time that I was in the fifth grade. And I remember that first black kid that I ever knew. I still remember his name. His name was Rodney. And... Uh, I learned that although Rodney had different skin than I had, that Rodney was not really a different kid. And we became friends. But there was one thing that I didn't like about Rodney. Until he came along um, to school, I was always the fastest kid in the school by a long way. I was always the first one that was chosen for kickball. And still today, you can look at my athletic build and you can see how that would be true. But anyway, what Rodney did, he, he came to school and uh, he challenged the king of the hill. Now, I, I thank the Lord that I was still able to outrun Rodney, but, you know, he pushed me to my limits. I really had to try hard to beat him. Now I had some competition. But then I also learned something else about Rodney, that Rodney was outside of his element. Now, in those days, school desegregation was token. And what, what they did was... They would bus in just enough black kids in order to balance it out according to the law. And so Rodney was the only black kid that was in my class. Well, I realized that. And uh, I became Rodney's friend. He needed a friend, and I decided to be his friend. And I'll have to tell you, I wasn't some great person that was just, you know, fighting for the rights and equality of all people. That's, what not, that's not what I thought of as a fifth grader. 
Now, I was already a Christian then. I've been saved when I was seven years old. I was already a Christian. And I just knew this. It came natural being a Christian that Christian courtesy teaches you to respect everybody. Christian courtesy teaches you not to mistreat anyone. Now, historians tell us that one of the things that contributed to the decline of the Roman Empire was the influence of Christian attitudes. Christianity teaches us not to be uh, class conscious. And so, in the Christian church, you had some, a few that were noble, like Philemon, and you had very, very many that were ignoble, like Onesimus. Now, in the church, we don't have any nobility. And there are no slaves here. That is, the only slaves that are here are slaves to Jesus Christ. And all of us are slaves to Jesus Christ. And so none of us can really be better than any other. Now, this is one of the reasons that I really do despise the idea of pastoring like nobility. And that's where the pastor becomes the Lord of the church. I don't like that. that that's not New Testament Christianity. And so in this church, we don't have room for a spiritual aristocracy. We don't have room for spiritual snobbery, or unspiritual snobbery for that matter. And you can't be a member of this church and say, well, you know, there's certain kinds of people that I don't like for them to be members of the church. And I'm speaking here not about moral issues. I'm talking here about just people. I'm talking about their ethnicities, their, their skin color, their nationalities, any of that. We can't say, well, we don't want that kind of person in our church. And so whether we're talking about the rich or the poor, whatever it is, there is no distinction among the people of God. Now, you need to read James chapter 2 sometime, and you'll learn there that the Scriptures teach that nobody is better than anyone else. And as it's been often said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so Christianity means treating everybody in the same way. Now, finally, we have accepting humility. Be not wise in your own conceits. Now, the best thing, or I should say the biggest mistake that you can ever make is to think that you are somebody. Now, you take a look at your skin. Where did you come from? Where, where did we come from? Every one of us was essentially a pile of dust. That's what God made man from. He made us from a pile of dust. Now listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 3. For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Now Paul was writing that in relation to sin. And so if you think that you're a better Christian than somebody else and you want to pat yourself on the back because of it, then you need to stop for just a minute to consider who you are and where you came from. Now we're a church that teaches the total depravity. We teach uh, the total inability of man. What we are are blobs of clay that have been fashioned by God. And not, we, we're not to have some kind of fanciful notion that we did this thing ourselves, and that makes us great. Now, this is what Paul wrote to bragging Christians. He, he talked about this, and he says, Well, uh, what do you have that you didn't receive? If what you have received came at the hand of another, then why are you bragging as if you didn't receive it? In other words, you didn't make you what you are. It's by the grace of God that you live and you breathe. And if God ever decides to withhold his grace from you, you're out of here just like anybody else. You know, I remember years ago that uh, there was a commercial on TV 
I, I think this was a commercial for shampoo, if I remember. And the first line of this commercial was a model that came on and she said, Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. And I remember thinking about that. We don't hate you because you're beautiful. We hate you because you're terribly conceited. You know, I, I don't like to tell jokes from the pulpit. Uh, Les Crandall was a very practical person like Paul. And, and uh, Les told me that jokes were not my calling. And, and then further he said, if he hadn't hurt my feelings enough, uh, Les said, you're no good at telling jokes, so stick to preaching. Just, just do that. But Les is gone now. Les died a few years ago. And he might turn over his grave, in his grave if I do this. But I'm going to tell you something, a little joke here. Uh, it kind of illustrates the point for us that uh, there was a young lady who came to her pastor. And she said, Pastor, I have this real besetting sin. She said, I can't help but think every time I come into the church that I am the most beautiful person in the church. And she said, I realize that's pride that's conceit. I've got a problem with this. I need you to pray for me and to help me with this terrible sin. And the pastor said to her, well, Mary, in your case, it's not really a terrible sin. It's just a horrible mistake. So you don't think, don't think that you're better than others. Now, here's good advice that we find in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, Jesus illustrated that very same principle with some practical advice. He said this in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse number 8. He said, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place. And thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. Now I'll stop there for just a second. Jesus is saying when you, when you go to this wedding feast, don't act like you're the big guy and go up there and take the seat right next to the bride and the groom. Don't take the highest seat that's there, but instead go down into a lower room. Take the lowest seat. And then he goes on and he says, But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. So you take the lowest place, and if that's not where you're supposed to be, then the one who invites you comes and says, Well, this is not where I intended for you to sit. I want you over here in the big seat. And then you'll go and walk up there, and everybody look and say, Ah, look what the, look what the, the host did for him. He put him up there in the highest seat. He's exalting him. And this is what Jesus said, But whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. But he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Proverbs 25 verse 6 says, Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king, and stand not in the place of great men. Now if I would written Proverbs, I would have said that a little bit differently. I would have said, don't toot your own horn. That's what he says. Now that doesn't mean... That what you have to do is just totally debase yourself. It doesn't mean that it's impossible to have any kind of self-esteem. But it does mean to esteem what you are in Christ. That you are what you are because of him. Now right after Paul wrote Philippians 2 verse number 3. He went into that passage about how that Jesus stepped down from the highest place that was in heaven. And he came down to this earth 
in the form of man and as a servant and was obedient to the death of the cross. And all of you know how the passage ends that God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. I mean Christ is going to receive all glory because he was willing to step down first. And that's what we have to do as Christians. Never consider yourself to be so much better than everybody else, not because of your education, not because of your bank account, not because you think that you've done great things for God or anything like that. We're all servants of Jesus Christ and all of us are equal. Here's the thing that you need to remember. It is by the sanctifying grace of God that a person who has been a Christian for five minutes is as worthy of heaven. That's by the sanctifying grace of God. He is as worthy for heaven as somebody who has been a Christian for 50 years. Don't forget that. You're going to be in heaven with a lot of people that just barely, I hate to say it this way, but they just barely got under the wire. They don't know what you know. They haven't learned what you've learned. They got there by the skin of their teeth, as Job says, and... You're going to be with those people for all eternity. Don't think that you're better than them down here if you're not going to be better than them up there. So what we have here is just some practical advice from the Apostle Paul about relationships with other people. He covers adversity, empathy, harmony, courtesy, humility. And when you learn to live in the right relationship with people in those areas, that's when you'll become a valuable asset to the body of Christ. So let's strive for these things. Let's learn the lessons of just practical advice of how to live with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together. And Lord, we we look at the Word of God and at times we can delve into the deepest doctrines that man has ever heard of. We can get down into things that are way over our head and try to explain them. But then sometimes the Bible just brings us up to the surface, gives us very simple things... And yet we find that in the very simple things, it's very difficult in our lives to live them. That everything that we've talked about here tonight, none of this can be done without your grace in our hearts to do it. Lord, help us to yield ourselves to you, surrender all that we have to you. And we know, Lord, you'll help us to work through these areas that we have problems with. Bless us tonight, Lord. Be with our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.